Now, let's officially begin this morning. We are actually moving into a new church. We've been talking about the message to the church at Sardis for the past four uh, Sundays, not chronologically, but the past four Sundays I've been with you. We've been in the first few verses of Revelation chapter 3. Now we're moving into a new message. Now I'm going to warn you ahead of time that there's a lot of stuff in this passage. There's a lot of scriptures that are inevitably cross-referenced and I just think that since we're living in the church age, approaching the end of the church age, we really, really need to study these scriptures because Christ is addressing the church. And it's very few times that these words of Christ, you've got all these red letter Christians running around that you know, act as if the red letters in the New Testament which were added by men as a study tool are somehow more authoritative than the rest of the New Testament. Anybody that calls himself a red-letter Christian, you need to be careful of. You need to steer clear of. Um, because they don't believe the entire Bible is the Word of God and they're usually going to rip Jesus' words in His Sermon on the Mount uh, or 1 Corinthians 13. They're going to rip those out of context and disavow or ignore the rest of Scripture. In reality, the entire Bible is a red-letter book because it all came from Jesus Christ. But what amazes me about these red-letter Christians is they want to talk about Matthew 7.1, judge not that you be not judged. They want to talk about turning the other cheek. They want to preach from the Sermon on the Mount, but they ignore wholeheartedly the red-letter rebukes. The red-letter exhortation of Christ here in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. It amazes me, the hypocrisy. These are the words of Christ. And the entire Bible is the Word of Christ, but how do you claim the red letters are more important and you ignore a great majority of them right here in the book of Revelation? So, we need to pay close attention. These are written to the church, not to Israel, not to a specific group of people in a period in history. Words that can apply to us and the principles do speak to us today. But these are written to us. So it behooves us not to move too fast. It behooves us to slow down and to glean every bit of truth we can find from this. The truth of the matter is though, no one can ever glean every amount of truth from the Scriptures. There's no such thing, regardless of what the commentaries say, regardless of what the seminary professors say, regardless of what the preachers say, there is no such thing as a Bible scholar. Okay, I've been a martial artist. I teach martial arts. I have a dojo up in Hickory. And God's allowed me to use that as a platform for preaching the gospel in times past. It's something I love. It's something I've enjoyed for years. A few of you in here are, 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 uh, are part of that school. Um, and one thing that I understand when it comes to martial arts is that the role of a student is perpetual. You know, there are some that take on fancy titles like soak or master and all this garbage when it comes to martial arts. A lot of it's a circus in American society today. But a true martial artist understands there's no such thing as a master. The role of a student is perpetual. There's always something more to be learned. And the same should be said about the student of the Bible. There is no such thing as a Bible scholar. That does not exist. The only Bible scholar is the author. And that's Jesus Christ. But in terms of understanding God's Scripture fully, there are only students. And that is why you need to be careful about wholeheartedly following the teaching of any one man. No matter how many things he says are true, no matter how 
Righteous He seems to be, and God uses men, and there are holy, righteous men of God that preach the Word today. But we always need to be like the Bereans. whom They took what Paul said. They didn't accept it wholeheartedly, but they studied the Scriptures to see if it were so. We are to be students of the Scriptures because there is no scholar. A scholar masters his subject, and no one has mastered the wellsprings of God's truth except for the author himself because he wrote it. And so as deep as we get into this, that doesn't mean, okay, now I've studied this, we'll move on and never go back again. There's more to be found. There's more to be found. So may we always be looking to these letters in this day and time and seeing what Christ has to say to us. But we're going to begin today in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia, write... We've talked about Ephesus, the backslidden church. We've talked about Smyrna, the the suffering church. Pergamos, the tolerant church. Thyatira, the unrepentant church. Sardis, the dead church. And now we're at Philadelphia. Philadelphia, the remnant church. Or maybe it could be said the revived church. As you read this letter, you'll see that it is almost entirely a word of praise. It's almost entirely a commendation from our Lord. There is no rebuke to the church at Philadelphia. Just like in Smyrna, those that were persecuted, there is no rebuke here. However, just because Philadelphia was given no rebuke, and just because their commendation and their word of praise from Christ is encouraging to us, let us not think that Christ is not rebuking us through this letter of praise. The word Philadelphia means brotherly love. Simple, brotherly love. The church of Philadelphia. That word appears six other times in the New Testament. We're going to get to that later. Here, the last time, it's actually referring to a historic city in modern-day Turkey or former Asia, Asia Minor. When we read the letter to the church at Philadelphia, we see the fulfillment of a great biblical truth that Jesus uttered in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Jesus had asked His disciples, you know, who do men say that I am? And some, you know, they responded, some say you're uh, one of the prophets, some say you're this, or John the Baptist risen from the dead, so forth and so on. Jesus said, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter stood up and made a bold confession there at Caesarea Philippi. He said, Thou art the Christ the Son of the living God. And then Jesus responded to Peter and says, Thou art Peter, Petra, I mean Petros, a stone, and upon this rock, Petra in the Greek, rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Christ made a promise there of what He would do concerning His church. Now the Catholics look at that and say, well that's Jesus uh, telling Peter upon Him He would build His church and therefore Peter is the Pope. Upon Peter, Christ built His church. But that, that's not the case. Petros means a stone in the Greek. Peter, a stone. Jesus said, upon this rock, Petra, I will build My church. What was the rock? It was Peter's confession that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. The Christ, the Son of the living God. On that profession, Christ said, I will build My church upon those that confess Me to be whom I claim to be. 
Christ promised us in those days before Pentecost, before the Holy Spirit came in and dwelt His followers, that He would build His church. And no one, not even the gates of hell, would prevail against it. When we read the message to the church of Philadelphia and consider the remnant church, what we have is proof that Christ did, is doing, and will do what He said He would do. It doesn't matter how bad the world hates the church. It doesn't matter how apostate churchianity becomes. It doesn't matter how small the remnant dissipates to be. Christ said He would build His church. And until He comes for His church at the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And Philadelphia is proof of that. Not only now, in these days of apostasy, when Christ still has His remnant, but in history, sandwiched between the dead orthodoxy of the Sardis church and the apostate Laodicean lukewarmness of today, there was a great period in church history, the Philadelphia period, the missionary age, the age of revival, when God took a remnant out of that dead orthodox church and He shook this world to the core. He shook the American colonies. He shook Europe, continental Europe and the British Isles. He shook the ends of the earth when He sent the Gospel to places where it had never been spoken. Not through a great number of believers, but through a few who took a stand against the dead orthodoxy of their day and in many ways were ostracized from their own churches. Philadelphia is proof that Jesus Christ will, has built and will maintain His church until He's done with it here on this earth. So folks... We need to be like the righteous man. I believe it's in the book of Psalms. It may be Proverbs. The heart of the righteous is fixed. He's not bothered by evil tidings. His heart is fixed, trusting in the Lord. As bad as things are in American churchianity, we need to remember these things are prophesied. And God still has His Philadelphia. And we need to be a part of that. Almost entirely a word of praise. Now, if we understand that God always has a remnant, it's through the remnant that He has built His church. I'm always amazed when we start talking about church history. And I'm, I studied church history in college and in seminary and graduate school. And the typical church history textbook in any seminary in this country pretty much traces church history from Pentecost through the days of the apostles up until Constantine and then from Constantine into the Reformation, it's a history of the Roman Catholic Church. And then from the Reformation on, it's pretty much a history of Catholics and Protestants together. And it seems like the history of the remnant gets ignored. That's not church history, that's anti-church history. A true church history would trace the church that Christ promises to build, the New Testament church down through the centuries. And when you do that, you're not spending a lot of time in terms of councils and popes and politics. You're spending a lot of time navigating a trail of blood. Baptistic Bible believers who gave their lives to preserve the Word of God. Who gave their lives to take the Gospel to the ends of the earth and suffered for it. Who laid a groundwork years and years before Luther and Calvin were ever born that allowed the Reformation to even take place in continental Europe and in the British Isles. That laid a groundwork that ensured that our forefathers, spiritually speaking, would come to America and establish this nation in righteousness. 
and that this nation would become a light. I used to teach American history in a Christian high school. And to the chagrin of the administration and some of the parents, I didn't start with the founding of Jamestown in Virginia. I went all the way back to the day of Pentecost. That's where my church history class started. The day of Pentecost. And very briefly, we traced the remnant church all the way down to those pilgrims that came to Plymouth Rock. Because what they strove to be and preach is why people came to this nation and why this nation was given freedom of speech and freedom of religion that the gospel of Jesus Christ might thrive. It's why a man like Ben Franklin, many whom claim to be a deist and an atheist, would write to George Whitfield in the latter days of his life and say, I wish above anything that you and I could move to the Ohio Valley and that we could take the light of the Gospel of Christ to the Indians who've never heard. You can't separate those things from American history. But it amazes me. It amazes me how we get off base even in church history and are ignorant of the history of the remnant. Therefore, we fail to be like them. Look at the confusion that's been created in our American culture going back to 19... I believe it's 1901 with the American Standard Version. Look at the confusion that's been created with the plethora of Bible versions. Okay, Most Christians are ignorant. They're ignorant of what the Scripture teaches. Go read the Old Testament. If there's three places in this world that you should never, no never, go looking for truth according to the Bible, it's Babylon, Egypt, or Rome. There is nothing in the Scriptures positive about these places. God told the Jews in Jeremiah's day, don't go down to Egypt. If you do, I will forsake you. Babylon is the seat of all that's pagan. In fact, Roman Catholicism today is Babylonian paganism clothed in Christian vestment. Egypt, Babylon, Rome, the only book of the Bible written from Rome was from a missionary that was in prison in Rome. I mean, the only books of the Bible that were written from Rome were when, when Paul was in prison and then he wrote to the Roman church and talked about wanting to go preach somewhere else. Peter was never in Rome. He wasn't the first pope in Rome. His books were written from Babylon. He was there preaching the Gospel. But if there's three places we ought not to go looking for truth based upon Old Testament revelations, Babylon, Egypt, and Rome, and yet the manuscripts behind a lot of these Bible versions came from one of those three places. And aren't the Reformation text that was preserved by the remnant? Now, I'm not going to get into that. And that's a whole other story. But we're ignorant of these things because we're ignorant of the history of the remnant. And we don't seek to be like them. We buy into all these things. I'm not here to preach a sermon on Bible versions or to chastise you if you use something other than I do. That's not the point of this message. But the point of this message is to say, look, there's some things out there that our naivete, our failure to study, have caused us to be ignorant. And it may be causing us to be disobedient. And that's why we need to study the history of the remnant. We need to emulate the church at Philadelphia. Not only the one that was in John's day, but the ones that exist like that throughout history and the ones that we may find today. We need to surround ourselves with true brethren. Just because a preacher says something that's 90% true doesn't mean he needs to be emulated. If I had a Nalgene bottle full of pure water from glacier snowmelt, 
about 90% full, and I had to use the restroom, so I, the other 10% I urinated in the bottle. Yeah, 90% pure water. I wouldn't drink that. I wouldn't even drink a bottle of water if it was 99% pure and 1% urine. So why do we think these TV preachers who say some good things are worth emulating? At the expense of those who are not only preaching the truth, but living it. It's amazing to me. But the Philadelphia church is one or a type of church we need to emulate. Philadelphia, brotherly love. This fellowship was made up of Christians who not only loved the Word of God, but they loved each other. They loved the Word of God and they loved each other. There's churches out here today that quote-unquote love the Word of God and their doctrine is sound, but there is no charity. There is no love for one another. There is no love for a brother that may need to be more perfectly instructed in doctrine. There's no charity. That's legalism. Then there are those churches that claim to love each other. Often that's not really love for the brethren. It's love for or appeasement to the lost at the expense of love for the brethren. But nevertheless, there are those that would claim to love each other, but the Bible takes second place. And doctrine is not important. That's ecumenism. But the church at Philadelphia had the perfect balance. Love for the Word of God and love for each other. That's what we should strive to be. Not one or the other, but both. In John chapter 14, Jesus said twice, if you love Me, you will keep My commandments. Don't say you love Jesus but despise His commandments. Don't say you love His commandments but you refuse to love your brother. It doesn't go together. It's impossible. If you love Me, keep My commandments. What does that mean? Does that mean we need to observe the Old Testament law to be saved? No. it's not what it means at all. It's very simple. Jesus' commandments are simple. And they mirror the way in which He summed up God's law into two laws. Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. In John chapter 6, a man came to Jesus, verse 29, and said, Lord, or some people came and said, Lord, what must we do to work the works of God? So in other words, they're setting Jesus up to define for them what it is to keep His commandment or to keep the works of God. And I find it very interesting that Jesus, in verse 29, answered and said unto them, This is the work of God. Now, He doesn't say feeding the homeless. He doesn't say um, uh, um, going out and, 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 and uh, giving money to some drunk on the street. He doesn't say going to church every Sunday or teaching a Sunday school class. He says, this is the work of God that you believe on Him whom He hath sent. The work of God is to believe on Jesus the Christ. And it's from that work that all other fruit is born. The problem with the American church today is it's bought into the social gospel. And when you started to see the real gospel transition into the social gospel in history, that's when Philadelphia church, the Philadelphian church period came to an end and Laodicea came upon us. But the work of God is to believe on Christ and these other things, pure religion and undefiled before God, visiting the, fathers, the fatherless and the widows, these things proceed from the work of God, which is to believe on Him whom Jesus has sent. I mean, whom God has sent. So if you love Christ, you'll keep His commandments. Well, what's His commandment? What's God's commandment to us? What's the work of God to believe on Christ? 
Not as a teacher, not as a moral philosopher, not as my way, but you might have a different way, but as the way, truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by Him. So, to love Christ and to keep His commandments is to believe upon Him and to allow Him to work through us. And the proof that we believe upon Him is that we are living a holy life. That we are bearing fruit. That we are visiting the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. That we are willing to come alongside the downtrodden. Not to appease them or to chum with them or to buddy up with them, but to declare to them the truth. And then to demonstrate that truth by meeting needs as God gives opportunity. If you love me, keep my commandments. John 6.29, believe on Him whom God hath sent. John 13, it's interesting how these Scriptures work together. John 13, Jesus specifically tells His disciples, I'm giving you a new commandment. So in other words, if to love God is to keep His commandments, as written in John 14, then we have to consider what Jesus is saying in John 13, verses 34-35. through He says, a new commandment I give unto you. That you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another. Well, this gets quoted all the times in terms of loving the lost and loving the enemies of God and uh, not calling sin, sin and all this. In chapter 13 of John, Jesus is talking to His disciples. He's talking to the church. He's talking to His followers. Not the entire world. And the proof of that is that he, di he differentiates between one another and all men in verse 35. All men is something different. Jesus gives a commandment that we as followers of Him would love one another. That true believers would love true believers. And th this love for one another which transcends race, which transcends culture, which transcends socioeconomic levels, which transcends... Society, something religion can't do, would be a testimony of the gospel to the world. Love one another. Now, the sad thing about the church today is it's love, love, love. Love for the homosexual. We don't want to love him enough to tell him his homosexuality is sin. It's okay. Just be who you are. God accepts you as who you are. That's a false statement. I'll go on record saying God doesn't Accept you who you are. You can't come into God's presence as you are. Your sin has separated you between, between you and God. And the fact is, God's love is such, God's love is so much, He loves you so much that He won't accept you as you are. He wants you different than as you are. And that's why He sent Christ, that we may be not who we are. Does that make sense? God loves you too much to keep you as you are. Come to the foot of the cross as you are, but when you come to the foot of the cross in faith, God changes you. So don't tell me you're a Christian and you love Jesus and you're living a homosexual lifestyle. You are a reprobate. And you are hanging over the fires of hell by a single <clears throat> strand of a spider's web as Jonathan Edwards preached about sinners in that famous sermon during the Philadelphia church period, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Don't tell me that. Homosexuality is an abomination. And I'll go on record saying that and I'll post it for anybody to hear. And I could care less what my government thinks. I don't care. I'm sick and tired of people being afraid because of politics. That's Sardis. That's dead churchianity. We're being called to emulate Philadelphia. 
Those who were not ashamed of the Word of God, they kept the Word of God. They kept the Word of His patience. Even when they had a little strength. And Jesus said, because you've kept the Word of my patience, I will keep you from the hour of tribulation that's coming to try the world. That great promise of deliverance in the rapture. The Philadelphia church loved the Word of God. They loved each other. They loved Christ. They kept His commandments. What is that? To believe on Him and to love one another. To love one another. The proof that those things go together when talking about Jesus Christ's commandments. You know, the whole concept, if you love Me, keep My commandments, go over to 1 John chapter 3. So, John is recorded in chapter 6, the element of believing on Christ. Chapter 13, the element of loving one another. Chapter 14, if you love Me, keep My commandments. And then go to 1 John chapter 3. Same author, John the Evangelist. John the disciple of Christ, the one whom Jesus loved. And this is His commandment, verse 23, that we should believe on the name of His Son, John 6, 29, and love one another as He gave His commandment, John 13, 34, and 35. So do you understand that to love Christ and keep His commandments is to do exactly what's written here. To believe on Him, not in your works, not in your church attendance, and to love one another. Not appeasing the lost, but loving one another. Giving our brother in Christ the benefit of the doubt before we give those that hate the Gospel such. That is what it is to be a church of brotherly love. You cannot have one without the other. And it follows, my friends, Jesus' great commandment, not His good suggestion, but His great commission five times in the New Testament stated a little bit differently. Mark 16.15 is pretty simple. Go ye into all the world and preach the Gospel to every creature. If you love Jesus and believe on Him, and you love one another, and you know what Christ has done in your life and in the lives of your brothers and sisters in Christ, then you will not sit at home. You will obey His commission to go and preach the Gospel. This relationship between preaching the Gospel and loving Christ and doing His commandments is also indicated here in the message to the church at Philadelphia, as we'll see. These are those that preach the Gospel. The Philadelphia period in the history of the church was characterized by missionary zeal. And it was characterized by open doors, open opportunities to preach the Gospel in places that were from man's perspective seemed impossible. And yet today everybody wants to talk about effectiveness. Is that effective? Will that work? People are so ignorant of what God did with His Word in the 18th and 19th centuries in, this, in, in, in the history of the world. What an amazing thing. Just like replacement theology that claims that the church is a new Israel and God has replaced Israel and forsaken His promises to those and all the, those promises are spiritually fulfilled in the church. Replacement theology, just like it goes hand in hand with anti-Semitism, racial prejudice against Jewish people, so does love of God Love of the brethren and proclamation of the Gospel. You cannot separate those, my friends. You cannot separate love of God, love for your Christian brethren, and the preaching of the Gospel. They go together. They are a threefold cord, as Ecclesiastes speaks of, that cannot be easily broken. Don't tell me you love God. Don't tell me you love Jesus. But you hate the bride of Christ, the church. Don't tell me you love God and you love Jesus. But you don't share the Word of God with the lost and love them enough to tell them the truth about the consequences of sin. Out of all seven churches here in Revelation 2 and 3, we can 
and we should strive to emulate Philadelphia. Now, there was no rebuke given to Smyrna. Smyrna was a persecuted church. But I dare say, we don't want Smyrna's situation to be ours. I mean, are we going to pray and desire to be persecuted? No way. I don't want to suffer like they did. So in that sense, Philadelphia really is the only one of the seven churches that we can pray for. We can strive to be like. We can emulate. Now, we want to be faithful in suffering like Smyrna was. But I'm not going to sit there and pray for God to persecute me, to send persecution to me. There's a couple things I won't pray in my prayer life. I won't do it. I will not ask God to humble me. I'm afraid to do that. The better thing to do is what Paul said, examine yourselves, judge yourself first, so you won't be chastised of the Lord. So I would rather humble myself than ask God to do it, because if He does it, it's not going to be pretty. So I'm not praying for that. Okay, I understand that God may have to humble me. I'm not praying for God to send me persecution. I don't desire that. That may be what I need to live for Him and to draw closer to Him, but I ain't praying for it. If he decides to send it, so be it. God be praised. There was a pastor in China that died uh, recently. I had the privilege of meeting him. He was a house church pastor. The believers met in a home probably half the size of this room. And sometimes they would pack a couple hundred in there. And a lot of the (coughs) gatherings were done while he was under house arrest. His name was Samuel Lam. He was a Chinese man that Christ saved. He was arrested, he spent time in prison, and he was harassed by the Chinese government to the day of his death. But they had a house church in his home, and these believers would meet and fellowship around the Word of God regardless of the potential suffering. And I had the privilege of meeting him when I was in China back in 19... I think it was 1997. And he said to me and the others that were there that one of the things the Chinese Christians would often pray concerning the churches in America, is that God would send them the same persecution that they had been made to endure because they knew how that persecution had strengthened them and had purified the church of God and had caused the gospel to go throughout China. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, right? And at first I was a little offended by that. You're asking God to send persecution to me? But then I understood that these believers truly love the church in America. And we're truly praying for them. Well, I'm not going to pray for that for myself. I don't desire persecution. So in that sense, we may not desire to emulate Smyrna. But we can desire. We can strive to be exactly like what is written here of the church at Philadelphia. Entirely a word of praise. A church that loved the Lord, loved each other, and loved the Word of God. Now, we could be encouraged by this, and we should. God has a remnant. Praise God for the remnant. We could sit back casually as I preach through these verses and think, well, you know, I'm part of the remnant. You know, you know praise God. He's, you know, we've been faithful. Christ is going to deliver us. And, and, and kind of wallow in our pride a little bit. But my friends, just because this is a word of praise to the church at Philadelphia doesn't mean it's not a word of rebuke to us. As we look at these faithful believers and draw comparisons between them and ourselves, it may be that the Lord, through His commendation of them, will rebuke us. 
I know He's rebuked me as I've studied these Scriptures. So even though we're preaching on a church that bore fruit, an encouragement, encouraging example, a role model for us, I hope these Scriptures will offend you. I honestly hope you'll be offended. I hope I'll be offended. You say, how can you say that? We don't want to offend. How can you offend Him? Don't offend Him. Don't say that. You might offend them. No, I want the Word of God when it's preached to offend. Period. Because the offense is what leads to repentance. And repentance leads to life. George Whitfield, one of the great revival preachers of the Philadelphia church period. I'm not going to go into a history of his life, but an amazing man that was used, or amazing God that used a humble man who found no home in his church in the dead orthodoxy of his day but would preach the gospel and hundreds and hundreds would come to hear him in the fields or the open air. He made this statement. I have to give credit to my mom for sending it to me uh, through Facebook this week. It is indeed a very poor sermon that gives no offense. Neither causes the hearer to be displeased either with himself or with the preacher. So even in this message of encouragement concerning the church at Philadelphia, if it doesn't offend in some way, it's a poor sermon. And if it doesn't cause you to either be displeased in some way with yourself or with me, then according to one of the greatest preachers of all time outside Jesus Christ and His disciples and the authors of Scripture, it's a pretty poor sermon. So, maybe Philadelphia's commendation will be a rebuke to us and cause us to strive to emulate this church. Philadelphia, the faithful remnant with an open door of opportunity for faithful ministry. These are all words of introduction. Words of introduction. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Philadelphia, as we've said concerning these other churches, was a local church in John's day. It was not, these seven churches weren't the only churches in John's day, but they were the ones within his sphere of ministry influence as he served out his days as an elder in Ephesus after his imprisonment on the Isle of... or it was before his imprisonment on the Isle of Patmos because he's there when he writes his letters, but apparently he was released later and lived out his days amongst those he's right, that are being written to here, those over whom he was influential. So because they aren't the only churches of the day, they must be representative. They were literal churches. They're representative of types of churches that existed at all times, just like all the other ones we've talked about. And thirdly, in terms of prophetic foreview, I believe each church represents a period in church history between Christ returning to heaven, Pentecost, and Christ's return for His church at the rapture when He begins to fill his, fulfill His promises made to Israel. So this was a local church in John's day. Philadelphia was a city about 28 miles southeast of Sardis. It's the modern-day town in Turkey called Al-Sahir. So the town is still there today. This city was founded by a Lydian king. The Lydians were the same who used Sardis as their capital years and years before that. Um, this king, Attalus II Philadelphius, named the city of Philadelphia. The city of Philadelphia was named after this Lydian king who ruled from Pergamos. So in history, all these churches were tied together. So this Lydian king was king in Pergamos. 
The Lydians used to have Sardis as their capital, and Philadelphia was named after this Lydian king who sat on the throne in Pergamos. So they were all tied together in history, not just in terms of churches in John's day. But this king was named Philadelphus because of his devotion to his brother, Eumenes. And therefore, the city bears that title. He loved his brother. I don't know all the details about that. But not like Cain who hated his brother and slew him. This secular king loved his brother. And that's what he was known for. It became part of his name. And the city was named after him. I think of John 13.35 and how sometimes we can even learn from a secular example. By this shall men know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. This king was known because of his love for his natural born brother. Are we known because of our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ? Or are we always wanting to criticize each other? Are we always wanting to gossip about each other? Are we always wanting to sit around and think about how I'm glad I'm not like them? Are we always giving the lost man the benefit of the doubt over our brother and sister in Christ? We need to be like this king. We need to be known for our love for one another. The brother-loving king. May we be brother-loving saints. There's some interesting historical facts about Philadelphia. Very interesting. And these things tie right into the imagery that Christ gives when He writes to the church. And these things show us that the Word of God can and does speak to us directly. Not only to those to whom it was written, the primary context, but it can and does to us in specific situations if we will seek God in His Word. Number one, Philadelphia was a gateway city. It was located at the end of the long Hermas Valley that began at the seacoast, Smyrna, and this narrow valley continued up to the city of Philadelphia. And then from Philadelphia, the road climbed up a steep escarpment up to the central plateau in the Phrygian land of Asia Minor. That central part of Asia Minor, Asia Minor, Galatia, the area of Galatia that was an agricultural breadbasket. Philadelphia was a gateway city that stood guard over the road from the seacoast, the harbor, to the agricultural land in the central plateau. Therefore, goods had to travel back and forth up and down this road. From Smyrna, the harbor, to Philadelphia, the gateway city. Even in history, Smyrna and Philadelphia were tied together. The two churches that weren't rebuked of our Lord tied together. These things were speaking to actual historical circumstances. The route from Smyrna to Philadelphia and then up into the central plateau to other towns like Antioch and even on into uh, Syria and and Israel um, was the one rival to the great trade route that connected Ephesus to those same cities. In fact, in medieval times, the greatest Asian trade route lie lied between Smyrna, Philadelphia, and the Central Plateau. That's how goods and services went east and then came back to the sea for transportation by boat. So Philadelphia, a gateway city that stood guard by the door that opened and closed between the sea and the agricultural land of Turkey's Central Plateau. There was no way to avoid the city on this route It stood guard over the road before it climbed steeply out of the valley. 
Philadelphia as a city was a door arising from its geographical situation. It was a door. Now look at what Christ says to them in verse 8. I know thy works, and behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, for thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Philadelphia, the church, was an open door. Or Christ had set an open door before it. Philadelphia, the city, was situated by an open door between the harbor and the central plateau. Notice the allusion to geography and historical fact. This was also a city that was rocked by 20 straight years of seismic activity. You guys know what that means? Earthquakes. There was a great earthquake in A.D. 17 that completely destroyed the city of Sardis. I talked about that weeks ago. This same earthquake completely ruined Philadelphia and it had to be rebuilt. But because the city is located right or was located right above a fault line, it experienced about 20 years of aftershock following that great earthquake in A.D. 17. The city was shaken, shaken, shaken. Those that knew there knew what it was to feel the ground shake. Notice what Christ, Even the church. Notice what Christ has to say in verse 8. Excuse me. Uh, oh, yeah, verse 8. Um, Thou hast a little strength. Now, the city probably only had a little strength after 20 years of earthquake-shaking activity. Verse 12. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. A pillar stands. It's strong. It's not shaken. See how God is speaking to the Philadelphians in their own historic context? As opposed to your city that's shaken, shaken, shaken again. He that overcomes, I'll make him a pillar in my city that will not be shaken. There was a proposal made to rename the city, to change it from Philadelphia to Neo Caesarea after the great earthquake of AD 17 in gratitude for Emperor Tiberius's earthquake relief. So there was a movement to change the name of the city. It never happened. But notice the allusion in chapter 3, verse 12. Him that overcometh will I not only make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall no more go out, you know, he won't be shaken, but I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. So see the allusions here to a specific historic circumstance. Jesus Christ was speaking directly to the faithful believers at Philadelphia in John's day those who would clearly understand and appreciate the illusions and promises made here. God's Word has the power, my friends, to do the same for us today. We didn't live in ancient Philadelphia. We've never been there. We can't understand these things. We can see them through study. But God's Word can and, do, can and does do the same for us today if we will seek His will in His Word. Turn to Acts chapter 13. <coughs> Acts chapter 13, 47 and 48. Here we have Paul and Barnabas on Paul's first missionary journey. And Paul and Barnabas have been preaching in Antioch of Pisidia, 
which is in that central plateau of Asia Minor, through which, you know, after the road went through Philadelphia, it climbed up to that central plateau and connected with Antioch in Pisidia, which is a, was a major city in that day. And Paul has preached a hard message, and the Jews came together and started mocking and blaspheming. And then Paul says pretty clearly, you know, that it was necessary for us to first speak the Word of God to you, but because you consider yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we're going to go to the Gentiles now. You guys aren't interested? My Jewish brethren, we tried to preach to you. You don't want it. We're going to the Gentiles. And look what Paul says here in verse 47. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. So God had commanded Paul and Barnabas to go to the Gentiles. They would be a light to the Gentiles. And when we read that, we probably think, well, you know, the Lord probably appeared to Paul in a vision like He did with the Macedonian call, or He probably sent a prophet to them, or He spoke to them directly. That's what we think, right? Uh-uh. God was speaking to Paul and Barnabas here through His Word that had already been written. Are you aware that this is a quotation of Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6? A passage that was given to Isaiah himself. A passage that ultimately is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. God spoke to Paul and Barnabas through a passage in Isaiah that was written a thousand years before Christ and that was written to a specific historic context. God used that to speak directly to Paul and Barnabas. He spoke through His Word. This wasn't a time when God, Jesus spoke to Paul physically or through a prophet or a vision. He was speaking to them through His Word. They had sought God in His Word and God in His Word said, go into the Gentiles. I remember wrestling years ago after the Lord saved me. I was a false convert for years. But after the Lord saved me, I was wrestling with, Lord, what do you want me to do? I can't follow you half-heartedly. I can't imagine just working a career and doing the normal thing. If, if you're going to save me, I'm just going to have to give everything to you. And I, I sense that the Lord might be calling me to some sort of ministry. And I knew that was a high calling. I knew I didn't deserve it. I knew I needed to make sure God was calling me. So I kept thinking, well, maybe He'll give me a dream. Maybe I'll have a vision. Maybe I'll have a feeling. And all of these things I kept seeking was like trying to smell the color of the number nine. It didn't make any sense. So I remember a day, I remember where I was and what I was doing. I was sitting on the floor. For some reason, my bed was not in my room. My mattress was on the floor. I don't remember if it broke or what was going on or if we were moving furniture. But I just asked God to show me through His Word. I'll do what you want me to do. And I was facing... I was at a crossroads where I needed to decide. You know, I'm not going to waste my time studying something else in college or whatever if God's going to call me to ministry. And I was seeking God in His Word and He brought me to Acts chapter 26. And I didn't just flip the Bible open and point to it. I was just studying. And He brought me to verse 16 and 17. Verses 16 and 17. And this is how I knew God was calling me. This is Paul giving testimony before King Agrippa. And Paul is recounting what happened to him on the road to Damascus. I was sitting down, pondering, 
in my room and I read these words, But rise, stand upon thy feet. For I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness, both of these things which you have seen, and of those things in which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom I now send thee. Just as Paul and Barnabas were spoken to by God through a commission given to Isaiah, God was speaking to me through a commission given to Paul. And I knew in those moments God was speaking to me. And the proof is that looking back, that was back, man, that was probably back in 1994. Wow, that's, uh, that's almost been 20 years ago. Looking back, God has done exactly what He said He was going to do. I stood up that day in my room and I said, okay, God, my life is Yours. And what has He done since then? Did He send me to the Gentiles? Yeah. Had the great privilege of preaching the Gospel in 42 countries. Gentiles everywhere. Has He delivered me from Gentiles that have sought to silence me? Yeah. Delivered Ricky and I from a mob of 200 people that tried to kill us in Kathmandu. He delivered me and John Lane from arrest in Bhutan. He delivered Ricky and I from a mob of Muslims with rocks and sticks in Bangladesh. He delivered me from wicked police officers that wanted to charge us with breaking some law for preaching the Gospel. So the proof is that God did what He said He was going to do. And I say all of this for this reason. Be careful with feelings. Be careful with emotions. Be careful with dreams. Be careful with visions. If you want to know God's will for your life, if you want to seek Him, God may use these things and these things will confirm what He's leading you to do. Before you start seeking in these other areas, you need to get in this book. And you need to ask God to give you a specific Scripture to speak to you. Ricky could tell you about that when it came to whether or not he should go to Nepal with me. Ricky could tell you about that when it came to whether or not he should go to Argentina. God will speak to us in His Word. Even though it was written to, for a specific reason in a specific point in time. Now, we don't want to rip it out of its context. But if we're seeking God, God, God will use that. That is the great wellspring of wisdom that God's Word contains. Something you'll never find in the Quran. Something you'll never find in the Bhagavad Gita or the Vedas or the writings of men. The Bible can speak to us here and now. It did to me in 1994. Seek God's direction by keeping His Word. And that's what the Philadelphian church did. It kept His Word. And therefore, God gave him an open door of ministry, both in John's day and in history. Not trusting in fleeting feelings or emotion, but in the written Word. If there's something in your life today you're trying to make a decision about, listen for God. Go to Him in prayer. Don't always be talking and jabbering to God in prayer. Listen for Him to speak to your heart. The Bible, I believe it's in the book of Isaiah, speaks of the role of the Holy Spirit in terms of what God was going to do through Christ. And it was telling Israel that the day would come when you would hear a word behind you that would tell you what to do. Do it. Well, that's the Holy Spirit. It was prophesying of what the Holy Spirit would do in His realm of conviction. God does speak to our heart. Listen. Seek godly counsel in making a decision. Look at circumstances. Circumstances can help you to understand God's will. But before you do any of that, or allow those things to confuse you, seek God in His Word. 
You'll know when He speaks to you. And all of these things will work together. And then you need to do what He tells you to do. Don't be like Sardis who started a good work and didn't finish it. Don't be like the Corinthian church who purposed to do something and a year later they haven't done it. Be like the Philadelphian church that kept God's Word. Does that make sense? Do you understand what was happening with Paul and Barnabas? They were just quoting Scripture. God had spoke to them through Scripture. God can speak to you. If you wrestling with whether you should go into the ministry, whether you should move somewhere, whether you should take this job or that job, go to the Word. It'll speak to you. I knew a family one time that was wrestling with whether or not they should move. And a place they were moving to was called the Baca Valley. And they were seeking God in His Word. And right there in the Old Testament, it talked about the Valley of Baca. God spoke to them. They went. And the proof that God was speaking to them is that uh, the circumstances and things that followed brought glory to Him. Philadelphia was a vine growing and wine production area. So Philadelphia was a center for the pagan worship of Dionysius, who was the god of drunkenness and fertility. So in other words, drunken orgies were commonplace in places like Philadelphia. A wicked influence that should have stamped out the church. Nevertheless, what's interesting is that a Christian testimony not only remained in John's day, but it actually continued throughout the centuries and it even prospered under the rule of the Ottoman Turks, which were Muslims. Look at the imagery of chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Where am I? Okay, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in 1 John here. What in the world? This Bible is so tattered. I've torn, I've torn these pages so many times. I just Everything's marked up. I guess that's good. That's good. Um, I know thy works before I've, uh, I've set before thee an open door and no man can shut it for you have a little strength and has kept my word and have not denied my name. In the midst of all this wickedness, the church remained. Even in John's day, that was a miracle. After World War I, most Christians actually fled Philadelphia and moved to Greece. As a result, after World War I, you know, we think about America the Great, God bless America and all this stuff. America's messed up a lot of situations in the world. Going back as far as World War I, after World War I, the Allies took the former Ottoman Empire where Christians largely dwelt in peace and they dissolved it and they basically created the map of the Middle East we see today. If you want to know where the map of the Middle East with all these Muslim caliphates comes from, it comes from the Allied powers of which the United States was the leader after World War I. They divided up an empire and therefore what we have today couldn't be avoided. Just like Germany, what, what happened at the Treaty of Versailles at the end of World War I more than anything else assured the world that there would be a World War II. There was no way to avoid it. So the war, war, war to end all wars, when man tried to, to end all wars, what did it do? It just ensured more conflict. How often have the Western powers, the USA included, mucked up a situation through intervention and partition, ultimately making it worse? Look what we've done in Egypt. Thank you, President Obama. Thank you, U.S. government. 
The bloodshed there today is a result of us going in there and messing around and removing that man from power when under his rule at least the Christians dwelt in peace. Now the Coptic churches are being burned left and right. Look at Iraq. And this may offend you, I'm sorry, but we'd have been better off leaving Saddam Hussein alone. Why? He was a Sunni Muslim. A secular Sunni Muslim surrounded by Shiite Muslims. They were, that's why Iran and Iraq had a war. That's why they hated each other. Yeah, they were both enemies of Israel, but it ensured that the Muslim nations of the Middle East would be always coming against each other. It was a protection for Israel. In some ways, his presence ensured some level of peace. Now, he was a wicked man, don't get me wrong. But when we went in there and took him out, what's happened? It's created a vacuum. Now, Iraq has become a breeding ground for Shiite Muslim terrorists. And it allows Iran to look directly at Israel. We've just messed up a big situation. Messed up a big situation. America's done that plenty of times. I'm getting off on another subject here. doesn't matter because God's sovereign and all these things are happening because they've been written, written before time. But think about the blood that's on the, the hands of this country. And I'm not talking about just the blood of the unborn. That's pretty big. But there's other blood on the hands of this country. The blood of all those innocents that suffered as a result of political decisions made by the United States. World War II, it was wicked to let Stalin and the Russians come into Berlin first. It was wicked to divide up Europe between, or Berlin and Europe between Soviet Russia and the Western powers. All those that died in the concentration camps in Siberia, all those Christians who were persecuted in Russia during the Soviet era, all the deaths from the Cold War, the U.S. got blood on its hands. So think about those things before you give your allegiance to a country over Jesus Christ. This country as it was founded doesn't exist anymore. Not God bless America, but God save the USA. Man, I'm getting off, off topic, but wow, how can you not make a comment? The Christian testimony in Philadelphia thrived despite every man-made reason why it should have been stamped out. And that is the testimony of the church. The church has survived. The remnant church. I'm not talking about Catholic churches or denominations. I'm talking about the remnant church has survived when it should have been stamped out. The nation of Israel has survived throughout history when it should have been stamped out. These things are proof that God's Word is true. And even Philadelphia was a testimony of that. A local church in John's day in which Jesus spoke directly to a historical context that would have meant something to those people. Philadelphia, a type of a faithful church that loved God and loved His Word. In terms of prophetic foreview, Philadelphia was the age of revival. The great missionary age that took place in the 18th and 19th centuries. I think of the first great awakening in America, 1725 to 1760. The second great awakening, 1801 to 1840. The third great awakening, it can be said, from 1858 to 1900. And then they didn't happen anymore. There's not been another great awakening in, this, in the history of this country. There have been localized awakenings and localized revivals. Praise God for that. But in Philadelphia, the awakenings, entire 
regions of the country were shaken by the Holy Spirit. The Word of God went out. Entire cities came to Christ. Entire towns came to Christ. People from the wilderness came to the camp meetings. And people were saved in droves, even in the Confederate camps during the Civil War. It's estimated that two to 300,000 men came to Christ. Amazing things that God did. Not only here in America. This happened in Europe and the British Isles as well. These type of things. But consider missions. The missionary work during... Um, this period of time, the 18th and 19th centuries, starting in the early 1700s, there was a Moravian uh, preacher, Count uh, Zinzendorf. Him and the Moravian brethren began to do missionary work outside their local sphere of influence. Something that was largely foreign to the church. It's Zinzendorf that said this, be content to preach the Gospel, to live preach the Gospel, and to die forgotten. Are you content to live for Christ, to preach the Gospel, and then to die forgotten by the world and without legacy? Instead of making a name for yourself or a legacy or I want to leave this behind for me. I think of the people that have plaques with their names on it put on the walls of churches because they gave this much money to some building fund that should have never existed in the first place. Are you content to live, to preach the Gospel, and to die forgotten? If you've been purchased by Christ, then you exist to bring glory to His name, not your own. And what a convicting statement. These type of attitudes were commonplace during the Philadelphia church period with those who loved and embraced missions. Zinzendorf and the Moravians took the Gospel to the West Indies, to Greenland, to Lapland, northern Finland. I've preached in Lapland. Preach the Gospel, live, die, be forgotten. Wow. What about William Carey in 1793? That Baptist missionary sailed from England to India. And what did he find? He found an open door to preach the Gospel. Carey wrote an article prior to his deployment to the mission field. It's got a very long title. And I'd encourage you to read it sometime. An inquiry into the obligations of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathen. And in this article, Kerry lists a number of reasons why the church of his day had no excuse when it came to staying home and not preaching the gospel. And one of the reasons he gave is we live in a day and time when the mariner's compass has been invented. How dare you stay home? What did that mean? The mariner's compass? It meant that now, you could pretty much sail anywhere in the world and get there within six months. That's what it meant for the tradesmen and the merchants and the shippers. And that's why the Dutch East India Company and the, and, and, and the British had trading ports set up all over the world. And Kerry said, look, we got these trading ports, we've got these shipping routes, and now we have a mariner's compass which ensures that we can get to our destination and any destination we seek can be gotten to within six months. You have no excuse, church, to stay at home. Wow. We can get anywhere in the world today in less than 24 hours. I'm amazed that I left here, drove to Miami, flew to Lima, got a little rest, took a bus ride, and in less than a week, I was at 16,000 feet in a very remote corner of Peru's Andes Mountains, preaching the Gospel to people. 
in less than a week's time. One day I was walking at 16,000 feet on the border between Chile and Bolivia with snow falling, an icy wind blowing, and two days later I was standing there sweltering in the heat of Miami on the tarmac. And yet we stay home. We're not willing to go. Man, what, it, what Carrie has written here should shame us. What about Adoniram Judson and Luther Rice who set sail for India in 1813? Those men who started studying the Scriptures as they were on the boat and they realized that believers' baptism was biblical. And they became Baptists. And what happened, Luther Rice ended up going home because they had been sent out by the baby baptizing Congregationalist churches. And they realized that because we've changed our conviction, we can't continue to serve. So Luther Rice went back to America to raise support from Baptist churches. And Judson went on to India and was baptized as a believer. And then he went to Burma and took the Gospel to Burma where it had never been spoken. Translated the Bible into their language. From the text tradition of the King James Bible, my friends. That's what was translated into Chinese, Japanese, Korean, Burmese, Indian languages, and all these other languages during the missionary period. What about Hudson Taylor and the China Inland Mission? 1854, he traveled to China. Other lesser known men like Jock Purves in 1926 to 1930 took the gospel to Ladakh, where Jamie and I have had the privilege of living. Northwestern India, Pakistan. Men like Victor Plymeyer, the Assemblies of God missionary who went to Tibet in 1908 and took the gospel to the very places that Ricky and I and Jamie and my kids went just a couple years ago. Japan, Korea, Africa, the Pacific Isles, etc., etc., etc. Open doors. The Bible in a multitude of languages. Open doors. The Philadelphia church period. It was born or revived out of the Sardis remnant that was mired in dead orthodoxy. So we can call it the revived church. Eventually, un unfortunately, this church would flicker and be squelched by Laodicean lukewarmness and ecumenical compromise of this last day's falling away. I can't really say for sure when the Philadelphia period began exactly or even when it ended exactly. But what I can tell you today in terms of the prophetic foreview of these messages, we ain't living in Philadelphia today. When did it end? 1900? 1950? There was an amazing revival and there were localized revivals after the Great Awakenings in Wales, 1904 to 1905. The Welsh Revival. Unbelievable what God did and how He poured out His Spirit. Even as late as the 1960s. I don't know if you know geography, but I had a privilege a few years ago of taking Bishnu. Bishnu and myself and Bethany, we drove all the way up through Quebec and Canada to Labrador. It's a, it's a Canadian province that's northeast. It's way up there. We were on a dirt road for 900 miles before we saw the pavement again. And we came around and ferried down to Newfoundland and came down the west coast of Newfoundland, this great large island, sharing the gospel, preaching, and then back into Nova Scotia and, and uh, Prince Edward Island where we did some work with Nepali refugees. But as we were coming down the west coast of Newfoundland, uh, we met a Christian man... Um, who was part of a little Baptist church there, and he was talking about how in the 1960s, 
His father had told him these stories of in the 1960s, these men came on boats to the west coast of Newfoundland and would pull into these harbors of these small little fishing towns and they would preach the gospel from the boats. And he started telling me about... His father had shared with him things that happened in these cities. These little towns, the entire town would shut down and people would come out to hear the preaching. And it sounded exactly like what I had read during the Great Awakenings here in America. And many people came to Christ during those, during those times. Now he talked about how sad it was that you know, 40 years later, 50 years later, the young people had forgotten these things and the churches had become dead. But even as recent as the 60's, God poured out His Spirit in an awakening fashion in a remote corner on the west coast of Newfoundland. Boat preachers. Boat preachers. So when did it end? I don't know. God continues to do things locally even today. There are some clear dividing lines though that give us a good, uh, a good idea. Philadelphia, we need to remember can be seen in all periods of church history. There's always a remnant and the characteristics of this church will continue to the end through the remnant. But if we look at history, when did this period end? After the Civil War in America and that Third Great Awakening that some say lasted until 1900, there was no more widespread revival in this country. There hasn't been. There haven't been earth-shaking revivals in Western civilization. So that's a dividing line. 1885 is an interesting year. What happened in 1885? In 1885 in England, the revised version, the RV, was produced and embraced. The RV became the first modern English Bible to be embraced. And it diverted from the traditional Reformation Greek and Hebrew text that had been the Bibles of the martyrs, the Bibles of the Reformation, the Bibles of the Awakenings. It diverted from that text and embraced a Roman Catholic text tradition. And this modern version introduced confusion and compromise. We can't deny that. 1901, the RV in England, 1885, 1901, the American Standard Version unveiled in America. You can't deny the historic fact that the English Bible blessed by God from the days of the pilgrims, the English Bible's blessed by God from the days of the pilgrims all the way up to 1900 reflected the received text of the remnant church going back to the days of the apostles and then the, the church turned from that and embraced Roman Catholic manuscripts. Manuscripts that came out of that were found in trash cans in Egypt, places that we shouldn't be looking for truth anyway. Manuscripts that had verses cut out that had marginal notes that denied the, the, the deity of Christ, that were the work of men who corrupted the Word of God. We turn from the faithful witness of the martyrs, the Reformation, and the, and the revivals in terms of God's Word and embrace something that was less than God's Word. A counterfeit, just like what Satan introduced into the Garden of Eden. We can't deny that since the ASV in America 1901, there has not been another Great Awakening revival. You cannot deny that. 1948, that's interesting. What happened in 1948? Israel was recognized in a single day as a nation. Something that Isaiah 66 prophesied would happen. Who has heard such a thing? Is it possible for a nation to be born in a day? God said, I'll do it. That's what happened. Israel became a nation as a result of a declaration of the United Nations. Well, this is important because when Israel became a nation... A divine shift took place. With Israel becoming a nation, God is thus beginning to shift His focus 
from the church to Israel in terms of the primary instrument of taking the gospel to all the world. Go read Revelation 7. What does God do after the church is taken out? He seals 144,000 witnesses from the 12 tribes of Israel. Levi is included as a tribe there. The tribe of Dan is not listed because I don't believe the tribe of Dan exists anymore. It is the tribe that brought idolatry into Egypt. Go read the end of Judges. And that tribe has been wiped out. Levi, therefore, is recognized and Joseph is divided into two. But in Revelation 7, these witnesses are sealed. And then at the end of the chapter, John sees a great multitude of Gentile believers that are standing before the throne who have been martyred during the tribulation. When Jesus Christ told His disciples that the gospel of the kingdom would be preached to the ends of the world and then the end would come, He was talking about the job that would be completed by the Jewish witnesses. What the church begins... Israel and God's witnesses sealed for Christ will finish. And so there's a shift that's going to take place between God using the church and then using Israel to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. And during the tribulation, Israel will be His witness. The remnant, those that He seals, those that He saves, will be His witness when the church is taken out. So Israel becoming a nation is big. That signifies that we're not in Philadelphia anymore, we're in Laodicea. 1952, the RSV. 1989, the NRSV. 2001, I'm going to step on a few toes in here and I'm, I don't mean to. The ESV. Everybody loves the ESV. ESV was translated from the same manuscripts as the King James. It's just a more modern King James. It's great. No, that's not true. Did you know that the RSV was a big popular Bible in 1952? And then they redid it in 89, the New Revised Standard Version. And this new one... It was so obvious that it had problems that it was never popular. It was never popular. And so they lost a lot of money. If you go back and study the translation committee and the history of that version, and you look at the ESV, all the ESV is is a new Revised Standard Version with a new name. And they went and put a few more changes in there to disguise where it came from so that it could generate better profits than their previous project. So the ESV is the New Revised Standard Version, is the American Standard Version, is the Revised Version. It's not an updated King James. The same verses are missing in the New Testament. The Holy Child, Jesus Christ, is called a Holy Servant, not a child, so His deity is diminished. The ESV, just like these others, tells you if you are angry, you are in sin and makes Jesus a sinner because Jesus looked on the the hardness of the hearts of the people and was angry when the Reformation text says that if you're angry with your brother without a cause, you're in danger of judgment. Same things are there. And when you, when you think about Bible versions and, and all the confusion that's been introduced in the 20th century in the church, you've got to remember something. You've got to remember something called the U.S. Copyright Law. In fact, the U.S. Copyright Office Circular number 14 says these words, and I quote, To be copyrightable, a derivative work must be different enough from the original to be regarded as a new work or must contain a substantial amount of new material. Every one of these modern Bibles that comes out is copyrighted. So people profit off of the sale of this book. Every one of these Bibles must be different from all previous versions by a substantial amount 
in order for it to be given copyright status. So if that's the case, my friends, and you still believe that the newest version represents the most accurate translation, then you are a fool. If you think that money is not the motivation behind these things. Why is the ESV different from the NRSV? It has to be in order to have a copyright. Why do you think the Holman Christian Standard Bible came out? Are you aware of the history there? The Southern Baptists got sick and tired of paying royalties to the New King James Version Translation Committee. It was costing them a ton of money to print the text in their literature, in their quarterlies, on their website. They got sick of paying the royalties. So they said, well, let's just come up with our own version and then we don't have to pay royalties. So, therefore, the Holman Christian Standard Bible was born. Guess what? It had to be different from the New King James by a substantial amount or it wouldn't have a copyright. Do you see what's going on? You see the tail and the trail of that serpent? I'm not here to bash you if you like studying from another version or if you're not using the King James, but I am here to tell you, be careful. Be careful. This is the work of the serpent in the age of Laodicea. Don't tell me this King James Bible that God brought forth into the international language of the end times out of the Reformation based upon the Bibles of the martyrs, the Bibles of the reformers, and a pure text that existed outside the Catholic Church. Don't tell me this book, the text tradition of which was bought by the pilgrims to Plymouth Rock in the form of the Geneva Bible. Don't tell me this book that was the Bible of John Wesley and Charles Wesley, the Bible of Jonathan Edwards, the Bible of George Whitfield, the Bible of the great revivals. The Bible of the missionaries that was translated. The, te- the Greek and Hebrew behind the King James was translated into Chinese and Japanese and Burmese and all these languages during the Great Awakening. And God blessed it. Don't tell me this is an outdated book that's wrong. Don't you come along in the 20th century because you have a degree and tell me this book that God blessed is wrong? Don't tell me when the Bible tells us in 1 John 5 there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Don't tell me somebody added that to the Scriptures and it's not in the original. That's a lie from hell. It's a problem, my friends. Most Christians are just ignorant. I was ignorant for years. I used to make fun of the King James Bible all the time. I used to think I was better than you because I could read my Bible in Greek. I had to repent of those things. We cannot ignore the rise of Bible versions and the ensuing confusion this has created. We cannot ignore the shift in mission strategy from preaching, teaching, and Bible distribution of the Philadelphian church period to the mechanical business methods of today. There has been a shift. We cannot ignore the shift in the church's emphasis on repentance, faith, and discipleship to a social gospel which dominates today and liberation theology. I think of the social gospel and liberation theology and then I think of that word Laodicea. What does Laodicea mean? It means rights of the people. Rights of the people. At Ephesus Pergamos, there was Nicolaitans who wanted to conquer the people. Roman Catholic religious sacerdotalism. Laodicea, rights of the people. What are my rights? What is... It that I want to do. What is my ministry? Making God or trying to make God come to us on our terms instead of on His terms. That's Laodicea. So there has been a shift. I can't give you a year. 
But we're not in Philadelphia anymore. Those days are gone. That doesn't mean that God's not saving people. He is. That doesn't mean that there cannot be revival. There can be. There was in the 1960s in Newfoundland. I've seen it in places traveling the world where God, there's a divine appointment. God's established for a man to hear the Gospel or for us to have a Bible to give to someone who we shouldn't have had in the first place. God's still saving people. God can still use us. He can still give us the open door that was given to Philadelphia because this remnant will exist until Christ's coming for His church. The remnant is what's raptured out of this church. The false converts. The, gen- the, the, the uh, unsaved churchgoers are who are left behind. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind. Make no mistake, even during the Philadelphia period, the Philadelphia church was still a remnant. And that remnant, though much smaller, does continue today and will until the rapture. It is the remnant, as I just said, not the tares, not the tares, not the false converts, but the true believers that are promised deliverance from the wrath of the tribulation. Look at verse 10. Because you have kept the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation which will come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. The remnant. At Thyatira, it was the rest. The remaining ones that Christ spoke to. At Sardis, it was the few which had not defiled their garments. At Philadelphia, it's the remnant church as a whole. Sandwiched between dead orthodoxy and a man-centered social gospel. Philadelphia. More substantial, more influential, used by God to rock the core of this world, the foundations of the earth. And what is the remnant in Laodicea where we're living today? It's any that will hear and open the door to Christ who is standing on the outside of the church. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Is not talking to I'm knocking at the door of your heart. Open your heart and pray this prayer and I'll come in. Christ is on the outside of the church. He's not even in the Laodicean rites of the people church. And so the remnant are those who will open that door of the church and let Him in. Those who will be changed by the Word of God and strive to be a New Testament church in simplicity. That's the remnant today. Is that us as a church? Is that me? Am I willing to let Christ come in and dictate the ministry? Am I willing to be a part of a Christ-centered ministry? Or do I want to do it my way? Do we as a church want to be Christ-centered? Doing things that are uncomfortable, preaching the Gospel, church discipline, these things and those things. Or do we want to do it our way? The biggest difference between the Philadelphia church and the Laodicean church, and I can't help but bring Laodicea in this because it's so tied together. One was God-centered or Christ-centered ministry, and one is man-centered ministry. And you're going to see this because Jesus refers to Himself. I know I'm going long, but I've got to get to this point. Jesus refers to Himself in verse 7 as one that has the key of David. He has the key of David. So as we study this church, I want to give you an assignment. Some of you guys like to have some Scriptures you can study through the week, so write this down. I want you to study these Scriptures in this order. Okay? In this order. So give you an assignment. This phrase, key of David, is important. 
Because it alludes back to something in the Old Testament. And it alludes back to a certain person and another person. And it differentiates between man-centered ministry and God-centered ministry. And that, my friends, is what distinguishes today between the remnant church and the Laodicean church. So read these passages in this order. Isaiah 22, 15-19. Don't go any further. Isaiah 22, 15-19. Once you have studied this, I want you to read and study Isaiah 30 through 31, those two chapters. Once you've gotten through 30 through 31, go over to 2 Kings 18, verses 13 through 16, and meditate upon what was happening there in the days of Hezekiah. 2 Kings 18, 13 through 16. Then I want you to go back to Isaiah 22 and read verses 20 through 25. So don't study all of that without sandwiching between these two passages. So Isaiah 22, 15 through 19, then Isaiah 30 through 31 chapters, 2 Kings 18, 13 through 16, and then Isaiah 22, 20 through 25. Then I want you to read Isaiah 36 and 37. Followed by 2 Kings 18, verse 17 through 19, verse 37. Isaiah chapter 36 through 37, after you've finished up in chapter 22. Followed by 2 Kings 18, 17 through 19. 17 through chapter 19, 37. Chapter 18, verse 17 through chapter 19, verse 37. Then when you've done that, I'm giving you a week's worth of work here. Go meditate on Hebrews chapter 7. Go meditate on Hebrews chapter 7. Then go over to Matthew 16. When Jesus tells Peter, upon this rock I'll build my church, and then look at what He tells Peter He's going to give him. Matthew 16, 17-19. And then I want you to come back to the message to the church at Philadelphia. I want you to read it and meditate upon it. When Jesus speaks to them as having the keys of David, it pulls us back to these Old Testament Scriptures. And it shows us very clearly that Philadelphia's example more than anything else was one of God-centered ministry. And friends, that's the problem with the church today. It's not God-centered anymore. It's man-centered. We need to understand how the remnant is different. And there were two men in Israel's history during the days of Hezekiah the king. One of them was all man-centered. One of them was God-centered. So God took the authority from the man-centered one and gave it to the one that was God-centered. Now, I want to warn you about something. There is a person here. His name is Shebna in Isaiah 22. That Shebna is not the same Shebna in in Isaiah 36-37, when you start reading about what happened in the days of Hezekiah when Sennacherib came to invade the, the town, there's another Shebna that's mentioned. It's not the same guy. Don't make, make a mistake there. I want you to pay attention to that first Shebna. Okay? That's a tall order, but friends, if we don't study the Scriptures deep like this, we miss some truth. We miss some truth. So study these things. Start thinking about Christ's authority, what He has the authority to do. Think about salvation, where it comes from, and how it results. Think about ministry effectiveness. What is effective in terms of ministry? 
Think about these things and you'll find an interesting parallel that I, I started diving into and I hit dead-end walls and labyrinth here, labyrinth there. And then I was amazed at the simple truth and how it ties back to what Christ says when He calls Himself the one having the keys of David. The keys of David. Any questions today? I've gone, wow, I've gone longer than I ever have. And that's just an introduction. We haven't actually gotten to the text. Um, but maybe a, a sign of being overwhelmed or, or, or uh, uh, unprepared as you, you go long and long. So please forgive me. I trust this will bless you in some way. I'm going to go ahead and pray. Uh, we're having a breakfast theme this morning. So I didn't eat breakfast much this morning, so I'm, I'm really hungry looking at that, salivating. God bless you all. Let me just say this. You know, I, I've said some hard things here this morning. Maybe you're offended and... You know, I got into to Bible versions, and I've got some pretty strong convictions where that concerned, but please make no mistake. I don't believe that just because you're reading from another Bible version, you're going to hell, or I don't believe you can't be saved unless you're reading it. I mean, that kind of stuff's ridiculous. God saves people around the world who've never even seen a Bible. You know, so don't, don't take that and, and, and make something that's not there. I'm just sharing some hard truth. The Bible tells us to move beyond the foundational doctrines of repentance and baptism and the Holy Spirit to move beyond that into meat. And sometimes the meat is hard to be digested. Take it, pray about it, uh, study it. If you've got any questions, talk to me. But that's not the main point of the message. The main point of the message is we want to emulate Philadelphia. And if we're going to do that, we've got to be careful about fallen prey to the typical platitudes of the church today that are just accepted as truth when they're not. I was having a dialogue on Facebook this week and a guy made a comment that, well, during the Reformation period, the church only had access to like six or seven Greek manuscripts and that's what the King James was based on, but we've discovered many more manuscripts since then and we have a whole lot better witness to work with and so the modern Bibles are, are, are more correct. That's not true. It's just simply not a historical fact. Okay, um, And so I just gently shared with him that that wasn't the case. And I showed him some examples and I invited him to study a few things uh, just to be careful about making statements like that because they weren't an accurate representation of the truth. And I did it in such a way where we continued to dialogue and it, it was a good, humble uh, discussion and, and the brother was uh, uh, reg regretted what he had said. So uh, that's the way to go about handling our brethren. We've got we to love them. Remember, doctrine, right doctrine without love for the brethren is legalism. Love for the brethren without right doctrine is ecumenism. We've got a problem either way. So just understand the motivation there. I, I love all you guys and, uh, and uh, I'm just a servant. And feel free to always approach me and ask me any questions. Or if you have a problem with something I said, let's talk about it. And uh, I, I, I went down one path with this scripture this week that... I thought I was going to use a certain topic and a certain approach and then I hit a dead end and realized that that was the wrong interpretation and I had to start back over uh, because I was thinking of an Old Testament passage that actually didn't say what I thought it did and I was mixing two together. So I had to be corrected this week. So I hope the Lord used it. I'm going to quit rambling. Let me pray over the meal and let's enjoy a little fellowship. Father, thank You for this Lord's Day. It's been long, Lord. I know Paul preached long and uh, that man fell asleep and fell out of the window and I'm, I'm thankful, Lord, that... Uh, he was okay. So even Paul preached long, long into the night. I just pray you'll use it. Um, I pray the brethren have been encouraged this morning, Lord, that you would help us to be like the church at Philadelphia. Though we have a little strength, 
that we'd walk through the open door and the opportunities of ministry we have even today. Thank you for those who went before us, Lord, that were used by you in a mighty way, not in their own power, but in your power, and that the gospel therefore went to the ends of the earth. And for men like Kerry who found open doors in India and others that took the gospel out and gave us an example, coupled with the example of the men of faith in Hebrews 11, that cloud of witnesses that should spur us to lay aside the sin that easily besets us that we may run and look toward the race and run the race and look toward Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. Lord, I pray for the food this morning that would nourish us, that the fellowship would nourish us, and that the word that's been spoken by your spirit would continue to nourish us the rest of this day and throughout the week. In Jesus name, amen. amen.